Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, everyone. Always a joy to be with you for an innovative, high-truth conversation and solutions. Have a listen to my testimony in front of California Senate Health Committee, March 23rd, 2022 on SB 864, Tyler's Bill on Fentanyl Testing. Members of Senate Health, I urge you to act today to save lives, make history, and set a national standard on the tragic fentanyl crisis. Every day, I treat patients who are exposed to fentanyl. My recent shift, I treated a young man who thought he bought a Xanax pill. He was found unconscious and barely breathing in his car. He was thankfully revived with naloxone. He readily gave a urine sample and was shocked to find out that he had no Xanax in his system but did have fentanyl. The positive fentanyl test led me to give him a prescription for naloxone and refer him to the appropriate treatment. The positive test led him to throw away those fake Xanax pills and warn his friends who may have bought the same pills. Fentanyl is the number one cause of death in the United States for ages 18 to 45, more than COVID. The number of teens who overdosed on fentanyl has gone up threefold. The number of black teens who overdose has gone up fivefold. California, fentanyl's deaths have gone up fivefold in the past two years. Our San Diego medical examiner is dealing with two and a half fentanyl deaths a day. Increasingly, Hospitals around California are including fentanyl as part of the standard rapid urine drug screen. This bill will push the rest of California's hospitals to do the same. A rapid urine drug panel tests for cocaine, amphetamine, and opiates such as that come from poppy plants such as heroin or morphine. The traditional drug tests do not typically include fentanyl, a synthetic drug. To include fentanyl, hospitals need to purchase a 75-cent fentanyl reagent. Hospitals quickly adapted to include COVID testing with the pandemic. They can, and they should do the same for fentanyl. Fentanyl testing will not solve the crisis, 
but it will engage the medical community in solutions and could save some lives. I urge you all to unite in leading California and our nation in solutions on fentanyl. Please support SB 864. What do you guys think? Who is the nay votes on that uh, bill? No one. This passed unanimously with bipartisan support. Um, as Senate Health will go now to appropriations. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Crystal, and I am an ER nurse and a base station nurse working with paramedics. It's so great to be able to talk to you, Dr. Lev, and for you to take my question on high truths today. I sure do miss working with you in the ER. We have been offering medication-assisted treatment for patients with opiate addiction in the emergency department. This is the MAT, or MAT program. I'm wondering if there is such a program for paramedics to start addiction treatment in the field. Crystal is an emergency nurse extraordinaire. She is the best team spirit person I've worked with ever anywhere. She managed the pandemic by bringing us all matching masks for St. Patrick's Day, Valentine's Day, 4th of July, Halloween. And I posted some of Crystal's group photos on my LinkedIn page. We have such a stressful job. And she was able to bring camaraderie and spirit to that environment. And Crystal, you have a brilliant idea. We are doing addiction treatment in hospital emergency departments. What is the role for paramedics? Let's find out from people who are doing just that. Martha Waller and Tara Tucker. Dr. Martha Waller is a senior program evaluator with Chapel Hills, North Carolina. She has worked on substance use and mental health projects for NIH, SAMHSA, NIDA, NIAAA, all the alphabet soup of federal agencies. And Tara Tucker is a paramedic and mental health professional. She leads her county's opioid task force. She developed the foundation for a mobile integrated health team of community paramedics that provides training on crisis intervention teams and post-overdose response teams. You can find Martha Waller and Tara Tucker's bio on the High Truth show notes. Martha and Tara, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Let's get to know a little bit about both of you um, and tell us how you each came to working on the issue of addiction or helping people with substance use disorder. Let's start with you, um, Martha. How did you come to this, um, your journey to working on a pre-hospital a paramedic treatment of for people who use uh, drugs? Sure. Um, so I um, have my doctorate um, from UNC in maternal and child health and started out um, my career reached uh, working or researching adolescents and adolescent risk behavior, um, mental health, um, sexual health, those sorts of things. Um, and I uh, came to Pyre, where I am now, which is the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation. And we happen to do a lot of evaluation research as well as um, um, other you know, primary research. And I was invited to be part of a um, project in New Mexico. Um, I had done my master's degree in New Mexico. I loved New Mexico. And I was invited to be part of the team to evaluate their substance abuse prevention programming in the state. So I did that for many years. And part of that included opioid um, overdose prevention efforts that they were doing. Um, and uh, so that sort of, you know, 
got me started in terms of opioid research as well as um, alcohol-related research. And, um, and then this opportunity, well, actually this opportunity, I think originally, and Terry, you can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, it started out as a CDC opportunity. Um, and the CDC was looking at um, innovative ways to address opioid overdose um, and prevention. And um, that evolved with lots of meetings into this particular NIDA funded grant. Um, we didn't end up getting the CDC and um, ended up um, applying to NIDA and, and got funding to do this. Oh, very cool. And Tara, tell us about, about your journey. So actually, I started off as a recreation therapist in a locked back then psych unit. Um, and so did mental health and substance use inpatient. From there, I went to a community mental health center on what was called an ACT team or assertive community treatment team, um, where we worked with people that had dual diagnosis disorder. So um, we ended up, I worked with the same patients that I had seen in the hospital um, for about 12 years. So did a lot of, lot of community mental health. Um, about 16 years into my career, I decided I was going to go to paramedic school. Um, one of my psych PA friends was, was like, go do some stuff on the medical side of the house. Um, and once I got into the EMS world, I saw the big disconnect between behavioral meaning mental health and substance use and the EMS world, but the call volume was there. You know, we saw a lot of people, um, they, they didn't always get coded as a behavioral health patient because um, EMS folks are trained to, on the medical side of the house way more. So um, one of the things I did in my mental health world was crisis intervention team training for, it was started for law enforcement, but branched that out to all first responders because, you know, I saw that we all need to be operating off that same playbook. Um, and then from there, went to work for, you know, several mental health providers, then went to an EMS agency where I was told we would never use that behavioral health stuff there, you know, and I was like, okay, good. I'll use my, my EMS stuff. I was doing quality management. Um, my background is in IT too. So uh, I enjoy the data side of things as well. And about six months there, the opioid crisis really hit heavy. And it was like, okay, now what can you do? Um, and, and I, you know, I knew, I guess, kind of like what you see, everybody operates in their own silos. So I felt it was really important to start a task force and start bringing people together, raise awareness about what we were all doing. Um, through that, met an addiction psychiatrist um, that was doing some, you know, work with Suboxone. And, and she and I would brainstorm a lot in her office right on the window, you know, kind of brainstorming. And I said, why, why couldn't we deploy this in the EMS side of the house? You know, after somebody overdoses, right now we don't treat them. We basically just reverse their overdose. But and I remember that, you know, vividly one day asking the paramedics, she was really tired of, of running, you know, some of these calls. And I said, what have you done for treatment for him? She said, I gave him Narcan. And I said, no, what have you done for treatment? Because you and I know that's not treatment. So um, that was kind of where it really birthed out of. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say about the mental health aspect. Um it's in everything, right? It's in law enforcement, it's in EMS, it's in the hospitals. I mean, mental health and, and drugs are really, it's our bread and butter um, for, for all, unfortunately, for all those parts of, of uh, society. And then, Tara, you have um, a personal connection um, to the issue as well. I do. Um, after I've been working on this, you know, this project and um starting with developing a protocol since everything in the EMS world has to have a protocol. Um, had brought two big hospitals together, medical directors um, from our state EMS. And, um, you know, we had kind of hammer, hammer all this out. Of course, that takes some time. 
And then one day I discovered that my own child um, had been using. And since I had already built this whole network and knew the pathway that we should take with things, ended up being able to get him in treatment within less than 24 hours. Um, and he's got about four years clean now. And um, a lot of that was through, through the help of Suboxone, truly life-saving and free. And, you know, people ask me all the time, how long, how long should somebody stay on that medication? You know, I, I can tell you, I, I don't worry at night. I get to go to sleep, unlike some of the parents that I deal with. Um, and for me, it's no different than if you need medication for your heart. You know, the brain is a is an organ. Um, and so he, he works a very productive job, has a healthy relationship. You know, all the, the things that people dream of, um, people who use drugs, right? So Yeah. So, uh, boy, that how, so you, you're, this is your profession. You're a health professional. You do this for a living. And then you discover what my son is using drugs. Um, looking back in order to help other parents, what were red flags? Like if you miss this, you're a professional. How, how are other parents going to figure this out early? So I was missing the, the signs of withdrawal and he would just throw one at a time at me. So like, um, you know, his nose would be running and I would be like, have you taken your allergy medicine? Right. His legs were aching, but it was during flu season. And I was like, have you taken some ibuprofen? You know, it was never like all these things together. So one of the things that we did, um, even, even with this project was we developed a brochure, um, for first responders to be able to hand out to family members, telling them to look for the signs and symptoms of an overdose. But after my experience, I included in there the signs and symptoms of withdrawal because that's, you know, I knew the withdrawal, I knew the overdose symptoms. He wasn't overdosing in front of me, you know. So, um, and, and you and, had no other clues of, you know, so, school, so the that, classic poor for, uh, social interactions and the classic things they teach you of like poor performance in school or, um, you know, they there are other red flags that that they teach. Are the, are any of those wrong or? I mean, he, he's always been consistent with his dad and I divorced. So he could tell me that he was going to dad's house and tell dad he was coming to my house. Um, and we didn't communicate. Um, that's that that was what I would say is our big area. And the night that I figured it out, um, that, that's the first thing I did. I called his dad and said, you have to come here. We had not spoken in years, but his dad came here. And that was a big, a big um, impact piece for him. He told him that when he was in, in treatment, he said, when it mattered, my mom and dad came together. You know, because I, and I told his dad, it's his life or death. You need to come here, um, you know, because that's how I view it. Right. And when from the moment that you figured it out, you said you were able to get treatment so fast. But again, because that's your expertise. What's what's your advice for other parents to, to be able to do that? Well, you know, I mean, like my, my pipe dream is that one day you can call 911 and get that same kind of help you can for a medical emergency for a mental health or substance use emergency. Right. Um, I, I mean, it's a lot about. Knowing, knowing the system and the context. And it's, that's the part that's hard. Would I have had, had I not had all the years experience? No. I mean, I know that. Um, I am fortunate too, that my child did listen to me. You know, he could have, he could have bucked on that and said, no, I'm not going. Um, so I do give him a ton of credit. He has taken ownership of his issue. Um, you know, another big piece I think is he has paid for his, his treatment and his medications. And that, that made him have that ownership and take that. Wow. Response. That's innovative. Uh, and, and I mean, I think it, it made it made him have skin in the game. Um, he's the girlfriend that he's had for five years has been there down this journey with him. The communication between she and I and, you know, the support that we gave him, he'll tell you, we, we basically kind of put it together like a puzzle. What were all the things that helped you with your recovery and has helped you maintain recovery 
for this long because I think it's important for people to see it's not just one piece. It's not just the medication, you know. Um, it's not always the same treatment provider. We've had to train, change treatment providers a couple of times, and that's really important with, with buprenorphine because so many people either want group therapy or they want this or they want that in order to give you the medication, and you got to find the right program for everybody. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Right. That's classic. So that brings us to Crystal's question. Crystal is an amazing um, nurse that I've worked with for so many years in the emergency department. She's a base station nurse, means she works with paramedics, um, teaches paramedics, and she noticed that we have in our emergency department, many emergency departments now um, now have MAT treatment that starts in the emergency department, medication-assisted treatment, starting buprenorphine people who are an opiate, who have an opiate use disorder with withdrawal. And she's asking a perfect question to the two of you. Is there a practical way for paramedics to provide um, MAT? So um, you guys really took that um, experience and and made it happen. Can you tell us about that? So um, really, we kind of used the concept with community paramedics because it was a smaller group of people to teach this this concept to. Um, And when we put all our heads together, we developed the idea as a bridge. So the bridge, the, the hard part we know, even if you put somebody on, on butte in the ED, how do you get them to a, an outpatient treatment provider, right? Because that's that's not what usually ED physicians have time to do. Um, so the community paramedics could be that bridge. Um, and, and we found through this project, it could actually be a two-way bridge. Um, so sometimes we've helped people get into treatment and that treatment provider basically do their detox or short-term program and not have the resources to get them back out um, into the community. So the community paramedics could do that. But we started out with the initial idea that post-overdose, somebody overdosing out, out in the street, we could go out and offer them um, Suboxone. We know we're putting them in precipitated withdrawal, given Narcan, right? So um, we know the likelihood of them going to use to combat those um, withdrawal symptoms is going to be really high. So everybody wasn't like receptive, like on day one, it usually took that building a rapport, you know, so it took a few days is what we saw. I thought everybody would say, yes, okay, this is great. Because most people on the street know what buprenorphine is, right? Um, but we did see you had to build that rapport. It took a few days. And then people, um, you know, had, had thoughts like... Wait, so the pushback was the paramedics or was the pushback the, the patients? The patients. Mm. So, you know, I mean... I think just just for them to understand, hey, wait, somebody cares enough to offer me medication. Like this is not, you know, that's not the norm, right? That somebody's going to be helpful, not especially somebody in a uniform, because they associate all of us together with EMS, law enforcement. You know that we all work together. Um, so, but the the idea was we would go out and give them the buprenorphine daily for up to seven days. Um, once COVID hit, we saw it was taking longer to get people into treatment providers. So the state. Um, EMS medical director said you can do it as long as you need to to get them into treatment but we've seen that bridge be a two-way bridge so so daily people would go out a paramedic would go out um, do the cow scale so we had to teach you know paramedics that well actually take us take us back a bit who sure. who, who gets this treatment is it someone 911 overdose someone who comes into the hospital or or it's only clients who before they come to the hospital tell, tell me who comes into your program so it can be somebody that that is post overdose. It can be somebody that's in withdrawal but has heard about the program and decides they want to get started. Um, we didn't want to make people just have to overdose to be able to get started, you know, with a medication assisted treatment. That didn't that didn't make a lot of sense. But does it start with a nine one one call? It doesn't uh, have to. 
It doesn't have to. So initially, that was how it would work, right? That somebody overdosed, there's a 911 call, the paramedics go out, the truck paramedics would go out, um, reverse them if it ha if they have not already been reversed. And then ideally, uh, and Tara, you know, jump in, sorry. Um, ideally, there's either, there's a, both a community paramedic and a peer there that will come to the scene as well and assess whether this person, number one, needs to either be transported to the hospital or would qualify for receiving buprenorphine at that time. And so there we have a whole, there's a whole protocol that they go through to screen to make sure that this is um, appropriate. Um, and if they meet that, then they are offered the buprenorphine on the scene right there. Um, as Tara said, once the word gets out, and they, um, other folks know about the community paramedics, they'll often, the community paramedics will receive phone calls from people who are in withdrawal who say, could I, could I, yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be an overdose, but that's originally how it was intended. And as Tara um, mentioned, our assumption was that people would say, yes, please let me have the buprenorphine. Um, and we just assumed that was a given that they would be, you know, they'd have just overdosed, they had just been reversed. It would be like, oh, of course, this is what I want. Um, and that was not quite as, as, uh, I'm not, I'm not quite surprised the <laughs> because a lot of people who I treat who overdose who were almost dead and even admitted to, I have my most extreme is I got, had a guy who was an IV Narcan drip. Because he kept overdosing and overdosing it, whatever, it wasn't enough. So he was on a continuous infusion. And he, like, when he was up, he's, like, trying to leave with his IV. And it's like, this stuff is keeping you alive. Please there's don't an, go yet. Right? There, um, there's a denial, right? Because you, you people think, they, oh, I, no, I just, that was, they're high and being dead is very, a close, similar sensation. Right. And that is exactly right. We had a lot, of, a lot of folks say, "I don't have a problem. I don't need this. I'm, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't overdosing, you know." Um, so there is definitely those are comments that that we we certainly hear from patients. Um, uh, yeah. So I'll stop there. Having the community paramedics be able to give that that medication one was somebody that can monitor that patient, but two, it was somebody that could bridge them to an ongoing MAT program. And try to find the right MAT program since you and I know they're different, different programs with different requirements. All right. So let's take take us through this now. We got a 911 call. Someone's overdosed. They got naloxone. Now they're in withdrawal. They're healthy enough not to need to go in the hospital, which cuts that pool. Because I think the most people actually need to go in the hospital, that they develop some sort of ARDS and actually need to observe them for a, a while. Um, but let's say you found now, you found the people who are in withdrawal, um, who don't need the hospital, and they that person agreed they're going to get, um, do you, they, they want something. Um, so now what? So then they would be administered the cow score to see where they're at in the room. And then uh, we'll explain what the cow score is. Okay. Cows, like a moo, like the cow. And it's, uh, <laughs> tell us what it is. The clinical opioid withdrawal scale. Okay. So there's a, a scale and, and that cow score tells um, us it's very, you know, you know, a list of symptoms. And if you have a cow score of what is it? Is it eight that you use? Um, Martha, do you, do you remember the exact? I don't remember. Oh, okay. Don't remember we, we use eight. We use a cow score <laughs> of eight. If your cow score is eight or more, um, and, and I know it, um, different places may be different, but we use eight, it, then you qualify 
um, to to start buprenorphine. If you if you're not in withdrawal, giving buprenorphine could put you in withdrawal, and then you'll hate it and you'll never want to use it again. So you we want you in withdrawal before we start this medication. So okay, so now the cow score is done, and uh, it's more than eight or whatever your cutoff is. Yeah, and typically we found that was around forty five minutes to an hour after you know they they had received Narcan from us on the scene. So um, this is a special paramedic, right? Because most paramedics want to, you know, move on to the next scene. They don't have time to play right. around for 45 minutes. So that's why we use what we call here community paramedics. So they are special, specially trained paramedics. They get additional training in post-overdose response team. They get additional training in crisis intervention team training training on, on really how to work with this population, understanding addiction better. So the fire truck is now gone, right? The fire truck moved on, um, and now there's a different guy in a in a car, in a little truck or whatever, um, who's a community paramedic. He's a specialist, and now he's one-on-one with the patient now for a longer period of time. And as long as they feel safe, they let law enforcement lead, too. So obviously that helps, you know, when law enforcement leaves. That's okay. Because the standard okay. protocol here is, is usually law enforcement comes on those okay. as well. So, so now they're sitting at the sidewalk or someone's house or wherever it is that this happened. Could it yes. be a sidewalk? Yeah. Yeah. You. Okay. And uh, and they're going to get the buprenorphine. All right. So now tell us, take us so, from there. So they start explaining the program to the person to see if if they're interested in, or not. You know, if they're interested, then obviously they can dose them there. If they're not interested, then they still follow up with that person, um, either by phone or in person. You know, sometimes it's hard to everybody does overdose at home. Right. So sometimes it's a challenge finding people, but they tend to share their phone numbers, their cell phone numbers more. Um, so sometimes and, and those follow up phone calls can be by the community paramedic or by that peer support specialist, which is somebody that's in um, recovery themselves. So. Um, so you have so so a patient who meets this criteria. So I'm kind of picture 911. They meet the criteria. This other person comes in in a different car. A peer support person comes into the scene with a different car. Um, and so now there's two, two people kind of helping this individual who almost died. Um, it, how long after getting naloxone being awake, do you wait for them to, to give the suboxone? So that really depends on that patient and, and what their score was and how long it talk, you know, it takes to talk to somebody to, I mean, you know, you got to develop a rapport with people before you can even just give them medication, right? But before they even trust you. They're not used to people that, that care about them, um, especially on a 911 call. So, um, and, and just to clarify, it depends on the time of day too, if that peers there or not. So it may just be the community paramedic and it may be after hours when the community paramedic's not there and they would follow up with them the next day also. So in, in the ideal situation, you would have both of them there. Some, because these are rural communities that we're working in, there's usually not, there aren't enough staff to staff this 24 seven, in which case then the truck paramedics explain the program to the patient, provide them a card, and then that inf- the paramedic then follows up with the patient the next day. Okay, so they may or may works. not get the buprenorphine that day. The ideal is that they should, but no. Yeah, okay. Reality, right. no. Okay. <laughs> Best case scenario, that's your goal that you could yes. start that day, but sometimes yes. it, it takes longer. And frankly, that makes sense. You want to be in withdrawal, right? They may, you right. know. We, what well, we don't want them is to have them in such a state of withdrawal that they go out and find they use again. Right. We There's just a window. There's a right. window there, right? Right. Um, okay. 
too, that, that some of the programs actually ended up finding providers that could take them the same day as the overdose. And so in that case, the community paramedic didn't have to give. They would get them straight in with the MAT program. We didn't expect that, but um, some of the MAT providers actually started working with the community paramedics. So, oh, very nice. Yeah. Um, okay. And and then what happens? So the, the peer that goes to the scene or hears about the patient, they're with that patient for a while. How long do they stay with, with that with that person? That really just varies patient by patient. You know what I mean? Um, but the, go- the goal is the goal to get them into the clinic and then and then move on. Well, and to build some rapport with them and and can not everybody's going to accept. So even if they don't accept, continue that relationship like, hey, we're still here for you. We still can. We're, you know, it doesn't just stop after that 911 call. That's an important piece, I think, because typical EMS is you run that 911 call and you're done. Right. So the peer can follow up um, for weeks with the patient, even just by phone. Um, and it depends on who the peer is working for. And that's sort of another caveat of, um, for example, in one community, um, the, the peer is hired by the EMS. In another, the peer is hired by the MAT provider. Um, so in that case, um, you know, the peer is, is there available from the PA, MAT provider and sort of checking in on things versus the EMS, which is a little different. So it, it there's different models. Interesting. All right. So, okay. So we got this program. Now let's talk about results, like good and bad results of, <laughs> of, of what, because nothing's perfect. That's just right. life. That's how we learn. That's what we learn from each other. If everything was perfect, or if you pretended everything was perfect, we'd all be copying each other's mistakes, right? Right. <laughs> uh, my, my mentor is, uh, uh, the father of emergency medicine, Dr. Peter Rosen, and and he said you need to learn from other people's f ups. Or he actually had a lot of journals, and he said we need to have a journal of negative results. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes sense. So why do we want to keep copying other people's mistakes? We want to be better. So, and we only right. publish the good stuff. So, so I want to hear about this program. Like what you know, what I want to hear about successes and and failures. So. Um, how many people have, have you found um, and that actually you were able to enroll? Well, so that's an excellent question. And I will say that, so this has been implemented in two different um, counties um, from two different funding streams. Um, and one was um, a NIDA funded R21. The other is uh, was funded by Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. And um the county that the Blue Cross Blue Shield um, funded, uh, how do we put this, Tara? We, we rarely have very little data from them. Um, very engaged, very excited about the project, um, but getting EMS to enter data and to collect additional data that they don't aren't required to is, is very challenging. So we have very little data, even though they saw hundreds of patients and in fact worked with hundreds of patients um but we don't have data to actually say anything about it if you can imagine <laughs> from, so you're not able to say <laughs> you're disappointed you want to know out of you know 100 overdoses we at 911 overdose calls we enrolled 10 patients and and correct um, and right. yeah, five out of How, 10 of those are still in treatment six months later right exactly exactly right. So, so out of the blue cross they got you nothing <laughs> they got us only the, the, the number of calls, right? And how many they administered buprenorphine well, to. That's so some, that's, that's what something. we have from there. And that's basically right, so something, what, tell- a little something. And in fact, they were very successful. Um, 
let me see if I can find those okay. numbers for you. Well, and I will say while she's looking for that, EMS people like antidote or beta, they do this work because, you know, it's that feel-good profession. Um, and the EMS documentation is not geared towards collecting uh, behavioral health data. Like, there there are very few mental health or substance use-related questions in in the traditional documentation for EMS. So that's what I would say it was a challenge. And, and even though we created forms, they wouldn't always get filled out because that was an extra piece that wasn't in their computer right, system. Right. Mm-hmm. We're, um, we're having trouble at an even more basic level than that. So in San Diego, we created a, I forgot exactly what it's called, something leave behind. Um, so you come to the overdose, we actually leave behind actual naloxone for the next time or for the people at the scene. And mm-hmm. even that is really hard. Something as simple as that to people accept it. And I could see where that happens because you're coming in there, you're, you're focused on the overdose, packaging the patient up, taking them back to the hospital. You don't really have time to um, talk, who else, and give the conversation. Can I give you naloxone? That's, that takes a whole, like you said, rapport conversation. So I, I can see where that, even that program that we're trying to do that sounds so smart, like, hey, you're overdosed. Your chances of overdosing again is higher than anybody else in the country. We want to leave that at the scene or with the patient. That's, even that's hard to do. Well, I had an EMT student I thought was really interesting. I had an EMT student going around a time or clinical time this week, and they had a particular call where they administered fentanyl to a patient. And she said, do y'all not ask? Like, have they ever had an addiction issue before you give a narcotic? And I said, see, y'all, y'all have been my students. That's why you think that way. That's not the traditional way of thinking in EMS, you know? No. Like, that, that should be in our, our simple questions that we ask, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and my, I go like back even, you know, I'm thinking like trauma center. We just say, are you in pain? We give you pain medicines um, and ask about that later. But we do, the intervention I'm asking for people to do, and if someone has cancer, you ask, oh, does that run in your family? Someone has high blood pressure, does that run in your family? So I, I'm just trying the basic there. Like you're going to ask about family history. Make it relative and relevant to the chief complaint. If the chief complaint has to do with alcohol or, or drugs, then ask about family history about that instead of uh, something that's really irrelevant. But yeah, so did you find did you find the 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 anthem? It's all mixed data? up. Uh, all right. For for the for the um for the one county, let me see if I can. I I have their, their data are so messy. I have to say, um, I can tell you that rough number. You're rough you're, numbers, sci- you're a numbers. scientist. You're very precise. I we, know. I know. Yeah, I know. this is a so, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they had they saw about I would say uh, 350 patients. About th- yeah, 350 patients who overdosed. Uh, Nine one one overdosed. Wow, overdosed. Um, and and of those that about about not quite 50% had an actual community paramedic on the scene. So was able to offer buprenorphine. And so, and then um, another like 60%, they were able to contact the patient by phone um, after that. Um, And of those, as I recall, and I'm not gonna, I'm not seeing this in the document that I'm looking at at the moment. If I recall correctly, about 30%, I think took them up on the um, Suboxone. I think that's pretty good. So not too shabby. Yeah, um, that's pretty good. Um, and yeah, 
did did you run into any adverse events? So, um, especially with more people using fentanyl rather than heroin, um, buprenorphine, regular dose can in, be more induced um, withdrawal, make people feel bad. Have you run into that? Was that a problem? Have you ever had any adverse events? I've had no reporting of anything of that sort. Tara, you? No, we haven't. You haven't seen that? We haven't, we haven't run into anybody that's reported that. So I'm, I'm I, like, I, I had one patient who, who was in the ER for a while, was going to get him to treatment. I actually got him a treatment bed, which is very rare. So excited about that. And, was, and I started him on um, buprenorphine. And I mean, I don't know that I even reported it, but he had a horrible reaction. I ended up admitting him to the a telemetry floor because he became very anxious. And I'm, I don't even know if it was withdrawal or what it was, but I gave him buprenorphine and he, his uh, medical condition deteriorated. It wasn't, wasn't pretty. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah. So, I mean, things like that happen. We just have to be right aware <laughs> that it can happen. Um, so because they're checking in on a daily basis, hopefully they're catching that fairly quickly, but that, I mean, it certainly seems like that's something that is a possibility. Now, Tara, do you want to talk about the the fact that the paramedic has to call the medical medical director to get permission? So it's it's not just that the paramedic is making this judgment. Yeah. So it's it's not like a standing order. It's a base station communication. Yeah. So there is a protocol that is that standing order, but there's still the communication with the physician again because these emergency medicine physicians are not used to doing. Right, that's not their expertise. Mm-hmm. They don't. Exactly. They don't know what a cow score is, right? Exactly. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, to teach them. And the, the one thing that we saw, you know, looking looking in hindsight too, when we developed the protocol, we had the state EMS medical director there. Um, I had my local medical director there, but then we deployed it in these two other counties. Those medical directors hadn't been involved and hadn't talked to the addiction psychiatrist. The other the other EMS docs were comfortable because they had sat with addiction, like several different addiction psychiatrists, and their viewpoint on these things and under you know had the understanding um in hindsight i think it would be good to do that with the other ems physicians that are going to do this project right is let let them have some time with that addiction psychiatrist to ask their questions and understand why it was certain doses they they tended to be very hesitant and very nervous about it for sure about somebody else something new i don't know i'm not there um yeah and then what is the What's the warm handoff from the scene? How, how how often, so you said you stay with them for a week until they could get into a clinic. That means there's a paramedic going to somebody's house every day for a week or they come or how does that work? However, the patient wants to do it. So the patient may want to meet them somewhere or have them come to the house, but yeah. Every day for until they're, op- until a clinic appointment is open? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and we found that working with the providers, though, when they knew what EMS was doing, they would actually work to get them in pretty quick until COVID hit, you know, and that creates some challenges in itself because... I I think that that is amazing, and I don't know how sustainable that is, (laughs) right? How can I have uh, such a professional come to someone's house every single day to give a medication until a clinic appointment is happening, especially in COVID when I can't get... You know, our clinics are not, even we are an MAT bridge program in the emergency department to the clinic. They're asking us for two weeks and sometimes patients are there again in the emergency department. We give them like a, a week supply at a time. And during COVID, we were asked to give two weeks supply at a time. Um, 
wow, I think that's a, a, an amazing, amazing service. I don't know how sustainable or reproducible that would be for the rest of the country. Well, and, 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 you know, I think the key to that is you have to have multiple providers. You know, EMS's mentality was initially, I've got one provider, we got a partner, you know, we can go with that. And I'm like, no, it's not one size fits all. You have to, you have to have multiple MAT providers because everybody has different requirements, you know, and some, some providers can see people telehealth, some can't, some we're in a rural area, the telehealth piece that is, is important, you know, for some folks. These are small counties here, so you're absolutely right. At a, at a large scale in a, in a very busy metropolitan area, you're going to have to have a lot of staff. Um, but these, that's what, I mean, that was what they were dedicated to doing. And the community paramedics in general in North Carolina are doing a lot of that outreach um, anyway, whether it's, you know, to check on patients with diabetes or heart disease or, so they're doing that anyway. They're out in the community going to people's houses. And the whole idea is to keep them out of the ED if they can possibly do that. Wow. And there's not a location. You're, you're doing this really to fill a gap because ideally they would go to the, the clinic and get this done, but the cl- clinic is not available. So you've created this other mechanism. Is that, is that right? Well, for, for here, it takes, it can take weeks to get somebody into a clinic, you know? So that's why we, we basically said this could be that bridge till we could get them in. Um, right. and, and then once they found out they were working with community paramedics, they were more likely to get them in quicker too, which helped. That that's important. And so basically the, the, the emergency physician from the base station is writing prescriptions, um, to this community that a group of people who are very, very high risk, they already overdosed and, and providing medicines uh, for as a bridge before they get into clinic. And one of the things I think is important is it, in our area, um, we don't see a lot of physicians like you writing prescriptions for VUP in the ED. So taking them to the hospital wasn't, wasn't helping fix the issue. They would make sure they cleared them medically and then send them back out and have to follow up. So it was a huge gap there anyway. Huge gap. I think that, what do you think about that, having that peer um, um, in getting them um, incentive, encourage empathy to to want this treatment? How, how has that been successful? Or have you measured that success? We've tried to. Um, again, what we have anecdotally, again, from, or at least from the qualitative data that we have um, from from the paramedics, they feel like the peer is absolutely critical, that the peer can talk to them in a way that, and about their experiences in a way that, you know, the paramedic just cannot. I think it probably, I think having a good peer and a peer who is perhaps, a peer who is open to MAT, because some peers, again, are not going to be open to the MAT, um, you know, they, they're about abstinence and you just need to, and, and we hear that even from the patients of, I'm not going to trade one drug for another. And it's like, well, but one drug might kill you and the other won't. So, you know, but, but you'll hear that even from, from the overdose folks that will say, I just don't want to trade one drug for another. Um, and if I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit cold Turkey. Um, and so having somebody who can really explain to them, about why this is different, why this is not the same, and why this is so much better than going cold turkey. And, um, you know, I, I think is, is really critical. But that said, I think if you have the right paramedic, the, probably the right paramedic could do this as well. But I, I think having the peer there is, is really wonderful. And I think from the paramedic standpoint, it's, um, 
it feels much better that, that somebody else can take on some of those harder it's, conversations. It's a, different, it's a different, frankly, it's a different personality, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that uh, we are an emergency department and we have a little section for just behavioral health patients. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the nursing skills for an ER nurse, you know, go, 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 next, 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 versus a behavioral health nurse who's like there and patient. It's mm-hmm. a completely different skill set, mm-hmm. a different personality. And the paramedics, mm-hmm. I'm sure, is like, okay, we're done. Like, okay, we got the for normal. Let's go. Next move, right? right. Um, versus a peer support, it's a different skill set. It's a different way of, of talking. I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and, and not because one's better than the other. It's because our skill sets, our personalities are different. As, as an ER doctor, I've got to move on. I can't sit and talk and give you the time that you deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, we saw that also with end-of-life care, right? An ER doctor, I'm, you know, have a short conversation. If I have a palliative care doctor, they'll sit with you for an hour mm-hmm. um, and talk about issues that are very important, but we don't have time for. Um, exactly. So, so exactly. I think that's great. What, what I do, again, we do MAT in the emergency department. I'll say, uh, a lot of people want that want Suboxone, but they want it just for help withdrawal. And I'll say, if don't use it. The mistake I see is people using it just for withdrawal. And I'll say, this is it takes six months, a year, some people a lifetime, to um, to help with craving, right? Mm-hmm. To make sure you don't mm-hmm. use because and that's one way to know that you need to keep using it is if you have mm-hmm. the craving, if it's talking to you, and you really want it. That means better to stay on buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And and depending on how long they've been using, I'd say then, you know, you need to be on it for six months, a year, or even more. Mm-hmm. And if you want to stop, just, you know, try it. But if you're having cravings, go back to bup instead of to fentanyl. Right. Well, right. I think that's true with this, you know, the, this younger population, late teens, early 20s, because that brain development, you know, they introduced drugs before that brain um, right. fully developed. And so, I, you know, I talked to people about that in our experience. You know, my son was 20 at the time. So, you know, do I think he would have had the same success without it? Probably not, you know. Or maybe he won't, won't need it as longer. I mean, I, my patients have been like, oh, they've been using for 20 years. Okay, you've been using for 20 years. Your brain is not going to go back to normal in a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If, if it took you 20 years to get to this point, it's right. not going to be, you know, two weeks for sure. <laughs> it's, yeah, or even six more years, right? hardwiring going on there at this right. point. Yes. So, and it's better... To use that, and my, the other analogy I use is with diabetes. Some people can just uh, stop eating cake and not have their sugars go up. Some people need pills. Some people need an insulin pump for the rest of their lives. Um, so every, you know, everybody's different. Like you said, not one size fits all. You see a lot. Both of you have worked um, with um, the the intersection of substance use disorder and mental health. Um, how are you seeing that um, play out in this project and in your work in general? They're so connected, aren't they? They're they just really so are. connected. Um, we, we try to make it separate, but it really isn't. It's not. It's, <laughs> you know, I, I, so I have a study from way back that tried to look at, you know, which came first, the mental health. And because one of the things we say is that we, you know, we use drugs to, to treat, to self-medicate our mental health problems. And, and I think to a large extent that that is true, but as far as how, what initiates this, um, it's often, you know, particularly in adolescence that you see the substance use, the experimentation with substance use happening initially, which then starts to affect the mental health piece. And then you end up in this cycle of, well, then I need more to make myself feel less bad about 
you know, what I just did or, you know, whatever that is, but you then see this cycle and it is self-medicating. It becomes self-medicating, but um, I, I just think that, you know, MAT, you, you need to, you need to address the, the, the drug uh, dependency there um, in order to get to start on the mental health and to start addressing the mental health um, components that are, are, um, feeding this uh, or leading to you leading you to do this um and and so as much as i feel like we need to get them on suboxone first deal with the cravings deal with the addiction piece of this so that they can start to address the mental health components and uh, you know i if they never deal with the mental health components and they stay on suboxone you know that's that's fine. They're not using anymore. They're not at risk of dying. But if you don't address the mental health, you still have you. It's manifesting some other way. Uh, you know that's man manifested some other way, and whether it's in your relationships, um, your inability to hold a, a job, whatever. So I feel like we've got to, as a society, deal so much, but address the mental health well, dis I, disparities. I, I, if I could add to that, one of the things I stress in the post-overdose response training with EMS professionals is you have to treat the whole person. So really looking at SAMHSA's eight dimensions of wellness, you, you've got to address those. So one of our forms actually assess that with these individuals. So looking at their housing, you know, looking at finances, looking at trauma. I mean, you know, you, you and I both know that trauma is a big issue in this population. So you've got to get them some trauma care. Um, you know, a lot of the MAT providers do some therapy along with the medication. Um, but not everybody is ready yet. Some people just want medication. And and I, I feel like you have to meet people where they're at. If that's their first step and they're willing to do, and we can use it even as a harm reduction method to keep them alive to move to those next steps. You know, they, they have to start seeing right. somebody who does care enough to, to ask them about all these different areas of my life. But I think we have to treat the whole person just past, past just the addiction and mental health. Right. Sure. We see that mix also, and I don't know how much in North Carolina, you have methamphetamines, but it's it's very rare for us to find someone with just an opiate use disorder. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, they also have methamphetamine disorder, alcohol use disorder, benzodiazepine use disorder. It's hard to find just that, and it's like we grab onto the opioid because okay, I have a tool, I can fix right. this, right. but they still have other ones. And absolutely, it has become so much more complex, hasn't it? Um, and I think that that's why you're seeing so many. Um, funding mechanisms coming out now to try and look at um, polysubstance use and overdose um, because so many um, folks are, are combining the and you know the methamphetamine with the with the opioids um, or the fentanyl the fentanyl of course is in everything at this point so that's regardless of your drug of choice this is um, you know people don't even realize they're at risk of overdose because they're using the cocaine, as we have the example of the West Point cadets um, in on spring break just a, a week or so ago. Um, you know, fentanyl is in everything. And so, um, you know, they're getting the opioid addiction, whether they intend to or not, it seems like. Um, but how the how that how addressing the opioid piece then makes the methamphetamine or the you know the other addictions or the alcohol it, it it's it's so complex and I right. I'm not sophisticated enough to know how to, <laughs> to how to address hard. all those pieces um that's not yeah I don't have that expertise but I I do know it's getting harder and harder 
Um, the the West Point uh, cadets, as you mentioned, they were using cocaine, and they didn't know it was laced with over, with uh, fentanyl, and uh, ended up a whole six of them overdosed, um, ended up on ventilators. So not pretty. They probably did not have a, an opiate use disorder or an no. addiction. They didn't need. Did, yeah. They didn't need naloxone. They needed probably fentanyl testing strips um, to right. test their cocaine supply. Sure. So everything sure. is different. But you're right. Fentanyl has been a game changer. It's in the entire drug supply. Um, that's why I give free naloxone prescriptions on um, on my um, website because people mm-hmm. should – it should frankly be over the counter. And it should be over the counter. Since it's yes. not over the counter, I am going to like buck the system and give it free to people if they <laughs> need it. Um and, uh, yeah, it is very complex, as you said. And-, and I think that people just don't realize uh, it's shocking. I mean, it's clearly those those cadets were certainly not, you know, regular drug users or they probably would have known that that you don't risk this, you know, without having some Narcan or something. Um, but, you know, people don't realize. Right. They were not users. All- they were cadets. They were not yeah. drug users. They right. were out to party and that's the point of fentanyl is one mistake could be your last mistake um which is very sad um so we're talking about really an approach on harm reduction and treatment one end for people who are heavy users that's what your whole program community paramedic and treatment is um and then i just kind of want to hear your opinion on on prevention, the other preventing addiction in the first place. Like we're putting so many resources and they're important. It's um, to people who have an addiction to to treat them. I see that like working at a trauma center, it's like giving blood to somebody who's, you know, who's got a trauma and bleeding to them. That's important. But wouldn't it be nice if we could prevent addiction in the first place and that less people would need blood? Um, And, and for that, I, I, I bring the conversation to pe- what people may be uncomfortable with, but I cannot talk about prevention of fentanyl if we don't talk about prevention of marijuana because I haven't met a single person who, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I haven't met a, a person who ended up overdosing on fentanyl that, that didn't sometime when they were like 12, 13 years old even, um, 10 was a my yesterday, my patient yesterday who started at marijuana. And I don't, what do you guys think? Uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've done this for over 26 years and I see the same thing. I mean, I've, I've asked, you know, that history and. Is that what you're seeing, finding too? Uh, oh yeah. The, the yeah. Most, every one of them started with yeah. marijuana and, you know, there's nothing to that. And, uh, or but, underage drinking and then marijuana. It's, it's funny to, so in my time in New Mexico, um, so I started working there in 2007 and we would gather youth data and, you know, attitudes about and perception of risk of harm from cigarette smoking and, um, you know, uh, alcohol, underage drinking and marijuana use and et cetera, et cetera. And you saw this beautiful sort of um, contrast between tobacco, um, cigarette smoking, where we've succeeded in teaching kids that smoking cigarettes, at least vaping was not allowed, not around really at that point or not big on the scene where, you know, their perception of the harm of smoking cigarettes just increased beautifully over, over the years um, with all the messaging that was going out and, and the, you know, I, I was amazed. I'm like, wow, for once, you know, they're finally getting the message. And then you, um, New Mexico, of course, has um, medical marijuana and um, has just, 
I don't know if it's, I guess legalization of recreational marijuana has just gone into effect as well in the past year or so. Um, but medical marijuana, uh, you just saw this decrease again of the perception of harm of, of, of using marijuana, just in contrast to the, the tobacco. And, and I just kept thinking, it. and then Colorado became, which was just north of New Mexico, um, legalized recreational marijuana. And we started again, seeing um, the underage, um, you know, the, the high school students going across the border, getting the gummies, doing stuff like that, and just, you know, bringing it into the schools. And so, you know, and, and as a teacher, you can't tell if somebody's eating gummies or, or gummies with marijuana or brownies or any of those things. The edibles were a great way to bring it into school and share it. Um, and you would only find out if people had too many. You would only figure out what was going on. Um, I I don't know how I feel about it. I'm so mixed. I, I don't feel that youth should be using it by any means. I feel like we need to recognize that it um, is affecting the developing brain in all the ways that um, we don't want it to be developing um, and creating neural pathways that we don't want to be created. And it's something that is a slippery slope. And, and I don't feel like, um, at the same time, I don't feel like we, I want to criminalize it, if that makes sense. So I'm not necessarily yeah. for legalizing it, but I don't want to criminalize and, it. And that's what the industry says. We And <sighs> my point on it is, I don't want to criminalize. I, uh, it's not even an issue of legalization, I'm sure. Right. It's, <sighs> um, it's about informed it's about informed consumers. So we know right. if you're right. using alcohol, it's a problem. We know yes. tobacco is a problem. We know heroin, cocaine is probably not good for you. But we're getting a, a completely different message, message. On, on cannabis. And that's why it makes it different. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and, and uh, that's why I, 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 I'm empowering you to, to talk and say what I know that you feel. It's okay to say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's certainly not good for young people by any means. And we need to, we need to regulate it the way we regulate, you know, I, I think we're, we're trying, but the message that's coming across, you're absolutely right, is that, oh, it's harmless. No I one's ever and overdosed I don't even on marijuana. I don't, and, and we do, we, I see marijuana poisoning every single day and they do <laughs> overdose every day. And, um, uh, just it's more like nobody dies of a puff of cigarette. You're right, but yeah. what a cigarette does to your lung, THC yeah. is doing to your brain. Right, right. T- Tara, what about you? And I mean, I agree. You know, and I think I think so many parents even discounted because we did that back in the day. You know, I hear that, um, and, and I don't think they understand too how cannabis has changed and that it does now get leaked sometimes. You know things like fentanyl. So I, you know, I just I feel like it's a slippery slope too. That that it starts that neural pathway, and for for so many people I've worked with over the years, that has been their initial drug they started with. Yeah, so. yeah, and then they they move on from there. Mm-hmm. This has been very um, in, enlightening. I really uh, admire you. You were able to take a whole community and bring such resources to a rural area in the field to people who need it after a 911 call bringing all that um to an individual that that's amazing i think that shows how much you care about those the, the people and how it make um a difference and then you brought science and data um um to that aspect um i don't know if that's like the solution for the entire country but the way that you're able to think out of the box 
and bring solutions, test them out, tweak them even, and see what would work. Maybe not in this setting, but in another one. I think that's absolutely amazing. Um, and do you have any ad advice for Crystal? Remind me of Crystal's um, Crystal. <laughs> Crystal is Crystal is a um, uh, nurse, an emergency department nurse, um, who is wondering about you know paramedics who are use, um, can get involved in the treatment of MAT, or really, why don't you give any parental advice that, that you have here? I mean, my piece with that with Crystal stuff is really um, building those partnerships together. How many times do, does the ED really work with EMS other than dropping off a patient? But like to really build solutions together. Um, that like, like for us, when I did that with my task force, that was huge. Our ED actually had those peer support specialists in the ED to start that conversation with people. Um, so, you know, I think we've got we've to branch out. We saw with COVID, EMS started working with public health. We should already be doing that around the addiction world, working with public health, DSS. I mean, here in our area, a bunch of the parents that have kids in custody at DSS is because of substance use. So, perhaps. So, you know, I mean, the, the partnerships is what I really um, express, like, that's so important and bringing EMS to the table. EMS usually doesn't get brought to the table. Tara, in fact, your your task force that you created um, in Forsyth County really, I mean, I think was a great example of, and I mean, and you initiated, so EMS initiated this, but I mean, you brought the addiction psychiatrists, you brought the treatment providers, you brought the, um, you know, even the faith-based community and the police and the everybody together to say, hey, we've all got to be talking to each other. The fact that you, as a as um, a community paramedic, were able to talk to a patient of, and know what are the what are the options for treatment, you know, you're a pregnant mom or you're a mom with children. What are the options for you that are going to be look different from somebody who wants inpatient and doesn't have to go to a job on a regular basis? I mean, that I think is critical. That. Um, Ideally, if, if there are paramedics who know what does the treatment community look like, what are the connections, how can you refer people to something that might work for them, I think is, is huge. Um, I know that that's not a paramedic's job. It, it's just, it's a wonderful thing to have that connection and to have that knowledge and to be able to work with a patient who says, I'm ready for treatment, but I got to work. I got to work my job. I can't go to inpatient or, um, you know, I can't go to therapy um, at 11 o'clock in the morning because I work from nine to five. So here's another option. Here are some, and then of course, building up those options. Of course, so many of our rural communities don't have providers in place and COVID made not, it not so just much rural harder. communities. <laughs> yeah, yeah right? that's true. Um, but, um, you know, what else is out there? And, well, and, and I think that's, you know, like I'm not the traditional paramedic. I mean, having that background in mental health and substance use has served me well, for sure. Um, and, and I think it's bringing the, the behavioral health providers to the table, too. You know, those site nurses like you were talking about, I mean, they do have a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, I was fortunate to work in the hospital and in the community with some great site nurses, some great psychiatrists that helped build that knowledge base for me, you know, and. Um, and really, we treated the whole person. I, I went grocery shopping with patients. I helped find them housing. I mean, like I saw all the struggles they went to related to mental health and substance use. You know, like most of them were were duly diagnosed, and so it, they 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 are so interconnected, right? Um, and I know that background 
helps me with these creative thinking ideas because you know it's we got to help them fight the barriers whether that's child care whether that's their job um mat providers put a lot of a lot of restrictions on you've got to do it this way to come to a program right i think that's great great advice thank you both um i say we take all that covid contact tracing money and put it into uh, contact tracing for overdoses and doing these kind of programs that you're doing. That's that's what we need to do. We actually have more deaths from fentanyl, age 18 to 45, in the entire United States for any reason, more fentanyl deaths in that group than um, COVID, suicides, or anything. Um, so I think it definitely needs the, the attention that, and the creativity and the community partnerships that, that you two um, have demonstrated. Uh, Crystal Garibaldi, thank you for your question. I miss you. I miss your amazing spirit in our emergency department. I bless you with health and happiness for you and your entire family. And Martha Waller, Tara Tucker, thank you for your innovations, tapping into the many skills our paramedics have in helping this unique and important patient population. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.